Well, before I begin the message, I want to offer my thanks to all of you volunteers uh, who helped make this place go. And you know, our motto is everybody serves. If you're new to our church, I want you just to count people when you walk in. Just count people that look like they're obviously serving in some way or another. You'd be amazed how many you'll count just that you'll see, and you don't even know everyone that's serving, but I appreciate that. I also want to say a special thank you, though, to the person who really keeps everything going, and that's Michelle Masterson. Michelle is our connections minister. Yeah, give her a hand. Often you see her as somebody who's, who's involved in our programming. She serves on our creative team that puts these services together. You see her doing the announcements, but there's just so much more to Michelle that you don't see. She's on our leadership team. And uh, she leads very well, and she is the one who has done such a great job of creating this environment for people to serve. She helps get you connected down on the the level of of one-on-one with people, but then also making sure that the leaders of the volunteers are taken care of and appreciated. And uh, when you get a chance, you want to thank a volunteer who will thank other volunteers, thank Michelle. Uh, She really deserves that. Appreciate you, Michelle. Well... I, have, I mentioned this last week at the end of the service because I just had to get up and wear my Astros shirt, but I, I want to I go back and, and, recover, uh, and recover some ground. I want to let you know I've had the great, fortune, the great fortune of just observing some uninhibited joy over the last several weeks, just fun and joy. Uh, my wife and I got to go to several water polo games. We got to see the Braswood uh, water polo teams. We got to see them at the regions. We didn't get to go to the state contest. I had a I had a t-ball game I needed to go to that weekend. But, uh, you know, we got to see just that joy is uh, on their way to winning the state championship in, in boys' water polo and state runner-up for girls. That was just, there, oh, there we go. Happy for them. That was fun. Uh, I got to watch the student body at Brazzaville rush the field as the Buccaneers ended a 10-year playoff drought with a 7-3 and season. And just to see them jumping up and down and having so much fun, it was just fun. I was talking to one of our parents, but I said, I just love this. I love seeing them do joy. There's been a lot of joy. A lot of our teams, I know I'll miss some, but a lot of our teams have gone to playoffs. Some of the volleyball girls that Bwood did and I, others in other schools have. I know that Brazosport, Columbia, BCS, uh, Angleton all made the playoffs. Angleton won their district, and, and right now I think, uh, BC, I know, BCS, Brazosport, and uh, Angleton are still in the playoffs, you know, playing another, another week, and we want to wish them well. As, as much fun as all that has been, and it is fun, it is joyful, uh, none of that compares uh, with, with being in downtown Houston Saturday night a week ago after the Astros won the World Series. It was crazy. I mean, it was crazy crowded inside Minute Maid. I mean, not only did you have to wait in line to go to the bathroom, you had to wait in line to get out of the bathroom. It was so crowded. You know, it's not as bad as waiting in line to get in, but still, it was like, this is unnatural, you know? And so, uh, but then after the game was over, it was so crowded. And as we, as we streamed out just in crowded, you know, packs out of the stadium with 42,000 of our new best friends. The streets were just as packed outside. It was crazy. Everywhere we went, in every direction, for blocks, cars were stopped. Cars and trucks were stopped on the road. And everyone was honking and waving at everyone. Um, You know, people were honking. Motorcycle engines were just racing. Just anything that could make noise. People were making constant noise. They were hanging out of their windows, yelling. Folks were sticking up through the uh, sunroofs or in the back of pickup trucks, waving Astros flags, saying, we won, go Strohs. You know, everybody was happy, except those few lone Philly fans walking with their tails tucked and going away. But, but the rest of us had fun. It was just uncontrolled, just uncontrolled, unforgettable joy. What a night. 
I wish all of you could experience something like that at some point. I really hope you all get to experience that. And here's why. Because I hope it will remind you that it's just a tiny taste of what we'll get to experience in heaven when all our troubles are over and it's just joy being with Jesus through eternity. I can just imagine what the first day in heaven must be like. It's hard for us who lose those we love, but can you imagine what it's like for Christ followers who wake up in front of Jesus? That's going to be heaven. That's the experience. This joy we'll get to experience. And it's also, I think, this kind of joy that I, I just described, I think it also compares well to the celebration that Jesus inspired when he entered into Jerusalem with his followers for the final time uh, in what we call the triumphal entry. That's what we want to look at today. So open your Bible, if you have it, to John chapter 12 and open it to verse 12, or open your BPF app and just go to today's service, and, and we'll have the verses in there, and you can also take notes. You can take notes in your program. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. If you want one, a print Bible to read, just go to the Welcome Center. We have English and Spanish translations. You can pick one up. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, the way to find where we're reading, if you are following along in the Bible, John chapter 12, it's in the New Testament, which means it's a little over three-fourths of the way through your Bible. And the first four books are, we call them gospels. That means good news. The gospel or good news of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different eyewitness accounts. We've been following Jesus through the book of John. John was one of Jesus' apostles. So as we follow Jesus through the book of John, our story takes us to the day that Jesus is entering Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry, it's a day after Jesus attended a dinner in his honor, uh, attended, and it was also attended by Lazarus' family. Lazarus was a guy he just raised from the dead, so they were pretty grateful for that, and so they threw him a dinner. Anyway, Jesus had gone underground after this because news really was exploding about him, and uh, as you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, Pharisees had put out an arrest, an arrest warrant for Jesus. They wanted to arrest him and then kill him. And so Jesus goes underground with his disciples, but he surfaces for this dinner. Word gets out about this dinner that he is there, and so crowds start to gather around there. Well, the next day, the next day, his brief seclusion had ended. Uh, he, would, he would, like, disappear in the evenings for a, a couple of days, but his, his seclusion was over, and he was headed into Jerusalem this day for his final Passover festival. And what a triumphal entry he made. We'll pick it up in verse 12 of John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Did you catch that? The king of Israel. This is different. A large crowd, a very large crowd, likely numbering in the thousands, has decided that it is go time for Israel supercharged by reports that Jesus raised a man from the dead. A growing number of people in Israel believe that it is time for a king, and they're going to crown Jesus their king. Now, for that time in history, Jerusalem was a pretty large city at 50,000 people. But during Passover week, which was their biggest annual festival, religious festival, the population of the town doubled to 100,000 or more people. So people were packed in, around, and outside the city. They were everywhere, sleeping on the side of the roads and, and just camping out. And it just thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people were around the city. And many of them were likely from up north in Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his ministry and where he was adored. So he had a lot of fans and a lot of believers from up there. 
They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now, palm branches, we think of this, and if you grew up in church, you saw palm branches. Well, that seems like a religious thing. Actually, it wasn't religious. It was really more nationalistic, more, more, more political. It was, uh, or, or patriotic, rather. Patriotic is a better word for it. Is uh, Palm branches, they waved them. That They were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. And so they would wave palm branches much as we would wave proudly an American flag. Israel's national hopes were now focused on Jesus. They were shouting, Hosanna, which is an Aramaic phrase, meaning save, save, save us now. So whenever you see that phrase, Hosanna, and, and hear about this triumphal entry, they're going, they're, they were saying, save, save, save us. And they were meaning, save us from Rome, from the, from the grip, the iron grip of the Roman Empire. Now that word, Hosanna, it appears often in the, in the Jewish Psalms of the Old Testament. And the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that also comes from the Psalms, Psalm 118. And it was a common blessing announced on pilgrims as they came into Jerusalem for festivals like this Passover. But when they added, after blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they added, blessed is the king of Israel, this, this celebration took on a much, much greater meaning. The crowd was welcoming a national liberator into Jerusalem. A national liberator. They expected Jesus to raise an army and lead a revolt against the Romans and lead them to military victory and back to prominence on the world stage. Now, they were quite correct that a new king was entering the city because King Jesus is, in fact, king. He's the king of kings. And he was fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy. But here's the deal that you need to understand about this so you understand the whole week that took place there. Israel's desire for a king and Jesus' purpose were worlds apart. They couldn't have been on different, more different pages than they were that day. This was a triumphal entry. And triumphal entries were, were not uncommon in, uh, in the ancient world as kings would return to their cities. And some of these people might have been other places to see it. They might have seen, you know, conquering kings come into their city. But the Roman conquerors usually came riding in on a horse, very boldly, or uh, on a chariot pulled by war horses. Notice how Jesus entered Jerusalem. It was a little different. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That was a prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. So Jesus riding on a donkey, it might seem odd to us, and it probably did to a lot of the people in Israel that day, in Jerusalem that day, but it was really quite common if you've read through the Old Testament in Jewish history to see kings and princes riding on donkeys or mules. That, that was not as strange as it would seem today. Uh, but even so, Jesus' choice of a donkey's colt was not what you would expect in that day and time, in that environment, in what was now a very Roman world. But it did send a message if people were paying attention. Jesus was sending a message. He would be a different kind of king, not what they were expecting. He was not a man of chariots and war horses, swords and, and uh, clubs. Jesus, Jesus, this king, would achieve his victory through humility. Folks, that's how we, that's how we achieve our victories. Leaders, that's how you lead, with humility, if you want to be Christ-like and follow Christ. And this is how Jesus... You need to understand, Jesus did not give people their warrior they were looking for. Jesus came not to destroy nations, but Jesus came to proclaim peace to the nations. And he still proclaims that peace, and he still is our only hope 
for real peace. But all this crowd saw was a political savior for Israel. That's why they would, if you ever wondered, how can they cheer him and say Hosanna at the front end of the week and then the same crowds, it appears, yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Here's why. He disappointed them. He was not what they expected. He was a different king than they wanted. And when he didn't turn out to be their fighter, the king that they wanted, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They turned on him. Jesus' here's what was going on. Jesus' temporary fans, they would read, they read the promises of the Old Testament. They read, they read them selectively to justify their ambitions, much as Christian nationalists do today. We have, we have Christian nationalists who merge uh, God's plans with, with political aims. And sometimes those political aims do not match up at all with uh, God's plans. But it's not just here in America. There's Christian nationalism and other religious nationalism, but there's Christian nationalism all around the world right now. We can see examples in Brazil and Hungary and other nations, but do you know where the worst example of Christian nationalism is right now today, this day? It's in Russia. The Russian Orthodox Church shares power with Vladimir Putin just as the Sanhedrin and the Jewish Pharisees shared power with Rome in that day. And, and what you may not realize is that that Putin has convinced many Russians that this war in Ukraine is a holy war. And that's why it's so hard for them to pull back because they think they're doing God's work by purifying this place. They're borrowing God's people for bad means here. So let this story be a warning to us, both what was going on with, with Jesus in Israel that day and what we see sometimes around our world and in our country and other countries. Jesus' purpose is for the church for Christ followers, are worlds apart from our political hopes. Sometimes our political hopes match up. We're pro-life, pro-justice. That's, that's biblical, but not all things do. I think it was Russell Moore who said it best. He said, the best way to be a great American is to be a great Christian. If we're great Christians, godly people, then we can help make this country great in many ways through humility. That protects us from being fooled by those on right or left who would try to use the church for political gain. Well, let's get back to the story. Now that you understand where their mindset was. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him, with Jesus, when he, uh, now the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb, that happened probably a few weeks before. The crowd that was with him, uh, with Lazarus, when he raised Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So this very large crowd in the thousands is now getting, is now getting larger and larger. And here's the response from the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were sharing power with the Romans. Verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. You may remember from a few weeks ago, if you were with us, in chapter 11, that the Pharisees had developed a plot to kill Jesus to prevent this very thing from happening. This was their worst nightmare. This was the very thing they were trying to prevent, the last thing they wanted to see. While the crowd believed it was, believed it was time to crown a king, the Pharisees believed it was time to shut this Jesus movement down. They felt like they had no time to waste, and they got into action. They knew in a crowded city where people were kind of crammed together in, in, un, in uncomfortable temporary living conditions uh, that, that any social disruption that began at a festival 
could just break out into violence. That's why when you go to a big concert or a big sports event, you see a lot of security. They know that even when people are happy and, and, and enjoying things, just the, the, the craziness of excitement can just, can just turn on a dime and, and turn violent. I witnessed this very thing at the Astros game last week. Right after the game, during the trophy presentations, a, a fight broke out three rows in front of it, us. Man, I mean, while they were awarding Jeremy, Jeremy Pena the MVP award, these two dudes, these two big dudes, man, they just started throwing it down. I mean, they were, they were getting after it bad. They were punching each other, knocking people down. People were falling down. They were falling down. It was crazy. My first instinct was to jump down in there and try to pull them apart. But then I did the math. <laughs> Number one, multiplication. I am twice as old as those guys. Fractions. Each one of those guys is one and a half times larger than me. They were big dudes. So I decided I would just step back and, and, and you know, let that happen. Students, if you wonder why, why should I have to do math? Generations, uh, you know, decades later, do the math. It may save you. Okay, so it's just, that, there, there's your reason for math right there. Well, a lot of folks got knocked down in the fray, and I was really concerned because I've seen stuff like this happen before, that it could just go crazy, that somebody could catch an elbow and think it was someone else, and, and then you just have everybody fighting. Security was there, but everybody was looking at the field. No one was watching this. These guys are throwing it down, and it's just out of control. And that's exactly what the Pharisees feared could happen in Jerusalem on a mass scale. Violence could erupt somewhere. Uh, a, a rebellion could turn into a revolution, and if that happened, then the Romans would come in and crush the city. And they would end that power sharing with the Pharisees because they were supposed to keep the peace. They might even blame the Pharisees for what was going on. So they hated this. Now, fortunately, Jesus' triumphal entry stayed positive. And uh, the fight at the Astros game was broken up, too, by some other really big dudes, and just in case you were wondering. You know, don't you hate it when someone tells a story and that leaves that hanging? Well, what happened with the fight? You know, One guy got his feelings hurt really bad along with his face. But anyway... I guess, I don't know. Now, once Jesus made it into the city, John records a very interesting thing here that happens. It just seems kind of plugged in here, but, but he wants to make sure you notice something very profound that's going on. Verse 20, John said, Now there are some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. These Greeks, uh, th th these Greeks they're also known as Gentiles. Those are two generic names that Jews had for people that weren't them. And so that would be us. To them, we would all be Greeks or Gentiles, okay? These, these Greeks or Gentiles, they were God-fearers who admired the Jewish faith and, and they respected its traditions, but they probably hadn't converted to Judaism. And when all these people are saying, blessed is our king of Israel, they probably weren't really excited about Greeks coming in to their party. They really weren't uh, accepting of people that weren't their ethnic background, weren't their nationality. They didn't want them. They didn't need them. And so they probably weren't really excited about this. But these Greeks came to, they, they, they came, uh, to the festival. And then verse 21 says, They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, that's one of Jesus' apostles, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, another one of the apostles. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So the Jews believed it was time to crown a king. The Pharisees believed it was time to shut it down. But the Greeks believed it was their time to meet Jesus. They wanted to know more about this. They realized he was different, and they wanted to know about it. The timing of their visit, which you know was very providential, 
Because now that Jesus' ministry to the chosen people of Israel, he said that several times, he mostly went to the, to the Jews during his three-year ministry. A couple of times, though, he went and, and talked to Greeks or Gentiles and spent time with them. But now his ministry to the chosen people of Israel, now that it was complete, John here is hinting at another prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling. The prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be a light for the Gentiles, that his salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Jesus was not just for the Jewish people. The Jewish people were supposed to be representatives of God's love and sharing God's love to the world. They didn't really do a good job of that. Jesus came to say, this is what it's about. And Jesus was a light for the whole world. Listen to what Jesus told these Gentiles along with the rest of the crowd gathered around them. John 12, verse 23, Jesus replied. And what Jesus does here is he, he just gets straight down to business to talk about what's about to happen. Jesus replied, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's who called himself, for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. If you've been following Jesus through the book of John with us for the past several months, this past year actually, as we've walked with Jesus, think about how many times Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. His first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding. But, but before he did that, his mother asked him, said, hey, they're out of wine. It's kind of, you know, hurting the wedding party here a little bit. Could you do something about it? And he said, my hour's not yet come. But he went ahead and, and did the miracle. When people tried to stone him because they, they, they felt like he was taking credit for, for, for being God, when they didn't believe he was, even though he was, they tried to stone him and he just kind of slipped out of their grasp because it said his hour had not yet come. But now Jesus says, that's changed. Jesus declared his hour has come. His time has come. But what time was it? And what time is it? Well, it was time for Jesus to be glorified as king, not the king that Israel wanted. He was a different kind of king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. It was time for him to be glorified as king. He would be glorified by dying on the cross out of love for us and coming back to life. It was time for the Sanhedrin's murder plot to succeed Although Jesus offered his life, they didn't take it. It was time for Gentiles, that's you and me, to be welcomed into the fold. And time for, for Jesus to show that all that prophecy in the Old Testament, that Gentiles would be included, it was now time for that to happen. But what it was really time for, specifically that week, was it was time for Jesus to die so that we can live. What does that mean? Jesus explains it. Look at verse 23 again. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus replied. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is a law of nature. This is just a common law of nature. A seed has to be buried in the dirt and decomposed so that it can sprout to life and bear fruit and create other seeds. That's how it multiplies. And this is also the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Just as a seed must die in order to give life, Jesus must die in order to give life to the world. Jesus, in this little agricultural example, predicted his death and his resurrection. He would be buried in the ground. He would come back to life. We call his death substitutionary atonement. If someone says, what did you learn in church today? Say, I learned the phrase substitutionary atonement. What that means is he substituted his life on behalf of ours. He stood in our place and he, he atoned for. That means he made up for, he paid for our sins. Our sins have to be punished. Jesus has already been punished for them. He substituted himself to atone for our sins. 
But then he rose from the grave to prove that his death paid for our sins and he secured eternal life for us. That's what Jesus said his hour had come was for. Jesus died on a cross for Israel, the Jews. He also died for the Greeks and he died for you and me. It is the reason he came to earth. In a few weeks, some of you are gonna be putting out your Christmas decorations and putting out your nativities. Anybody already getting their decorations out, nativities out? Yeah, I love you. It's never too soon to start Christmas. Okay, well, anyway, when you put those nativities out, I want you to remember something. Jesus was born to die. The story of Christmas is not complete without Easter, the cross and Easter. Jesus was born to die. When we begin our Christmas series this Sunday after Thanksgiving, two weeks from now, when we begin our Christmas message series, we're going to tie the two stories together as we go from the manger to the cross and even to Jesus' second coming, all in the month of December before we get to Christmas. We're going to go through that. And I want you to invite your friends, your family members, your fellow students, the people you work with who don't know Jesus, invite them to come here. We will give them a nostalgic Christmas experience and make it worth their time. And hopefully, this is our goal, our desire, is they will get to meet Jesus while they're here and see the real reason for Christmas, and learn how much Jesus loves them. Please bring them so that they can meet him. Let me wrap this up. When Jesus said the hour has come, what he meant was that Jesus died, had to die to give us life. And we receive that life that he's already offered, that he's already paid for and made up for. We receive that life by letting go of our efforts and following him. Jesus explained this, how to do, how to do that. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's exaggerating here to make a point. Verse 26, he said, whoever serves me must follow me. That's why we talk about being Christ's followers. Not did you, did you, you know, say a prayer one day, walk an aisle, get baptized or something. Are you following Jesus? Whoever serves me must follow me, he says, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Think about this. Jesus is saying, whoever serves me must follow me. Where was he going that week? Anybody know? To the cross. To the cross. Whoever serves him must follow me. We must follow him to the cross. We must die with him. What does it mean to hate your life? What does it mean to die to yourself? All that really means is that we don't focus on ourselves. We don't focus on ourselves. Instead, we pursue Jesus with every fiber of our being. Jesus is not a Sunday morning experience where you come and say, that's good. Jesus is a lifestyle. He's not an app on your phone. He's an operating system. 24-7, 365. That's what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower. We follow him. And here's why. Joy in Jesus is the only joy that lasts. I talked to a man after the service after the first service, and he, he was saying this, this was his life. He said, these things aren't satisfying. They, they didn't work out. I, you know, I kind of followed Jesus for a while. I didn't, and I know that I was going in the wrong direction. I want to follow Jesus. Following Jesus, the joy in Jesus is the only joy that lasts. And the way to find that joy is to die to yourself. I heard it described this way. It's to die to your little dreams and empty routines. To die to playing it safe and protecting your, your status, your reputation. You die to small, stingy, self-centered living. And when you die to that, you come to life. You come to experience really life. Then you will find joy. So here's the question I want to ask you. If you've just been kind of following from a distance, I'll talk about that more next week. If you're kind of following from a distance and, and just haven't really 
been ready to say, I'm in. I'm going all in. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm stepping over the line of faith. If you haven't done that, but you feel Jesus tugging at your heart right now to make that decision, you believe, now it's time to commit. I can help you do that with a simple prayer. But it begins a journey. You step over the line of faith into new life. It's not easy, but it's better. It's, it's the best life. It's a life with joy and meaning and purpose. If you're ready to do that, let me, I can lead you in a, in, a, in a short, simple prayer that will help express that faith to Jesus. If, if all of you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment, let me lead those of you who are thinking about doing that right now. Just pray along with me. Say, Jesus, I'm ready to die to self. I believe you died for me. I believe that you died in my place to pay for my sins. And I admit I need that. I'm a sinner. Please forgive my sins. Come into my life. Take control. I don't know where this will lead, but I trust you. I'm in. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, you stepped over the line of faith, out of darkness into light. I'll talk more about that next week as well. But I want to encourage you to let me know after the service, I'll be over here at Connection Point, and some others of us will be there as well. And we'll be there to talk to you, to explain maybe a little bit more of what you've done, or, or if you're just thinking about that and you haven't done that yet, but you want to ask some questions, come over there. We'll be there also. We'll give you a 14-day guide that, that Randy developed just to help you uh, walk through the steps, uh, of your first steps of knowing Jesus Christ. So connect with us over there, if you will. I want to wrap up this part of the text before we get to next week, which next week we'll, we'll end the, our, our, our walk with John for this year, and we'll pick it back up in January. But let me, let me, I want to see how this next part of this text points to what we're about to do as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As Jesus explained how death gives life, he had a moment as he's talking to these people and he's saying, you know, a, a kernel of wheat has to fall on the ground and die. He thought about, it, it, he thought about what it meant to him that he was about to die. He thought about the cross, and, and he just had this moment. It shook him up. Look what he said in verse 27. He said, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Maybe you've been in a similar spot. You're already a follower of Jesus Christ, and he's put a next step in front of you, and it frightens you or gives you pause, or you have a moment to think like, wow, am I up to this? Can I do this? Jesus has felt the way you feel right now. But he pushed through it knowing that he could trust the Father's plan and out of love for us, and you can too. He said, what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And here's a crazy thing that then happened. Then a voice from heaven, then came, a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. I mean, God spoke and people heard it. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. So it was understandable. People understood what was said. Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, he's talking about Satan, will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus was talking about the cross. He would be crucified on in less than a week when he said, 
if I'm lifted up. He meant lifted up on a cross, and they knew what he was talking about. That's why he said, my soul is troubled. Father, save me from this hour. We want to take a moment to think about this, to remember his death. We do this on a pretty regular basis here, to, to remember what Jesus did, to never forget his death. And we have what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, to help us describe this and never forget what Jesus did for us. So servers, Lord's Supper servers, if you would, go ahead and begin serving now as I explain what this is. And when you receive the elements, when they come down, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I'd ask you to take the bread and take the cup. And then when you are ready, just go ahead and take it there. Say a prayer of thanksgiving before you take that. And if God reminds you of any sin, you need to confess, confess, and ask forgiveness for that sin. But know this, that you're worthy to take the Lord's Supper, not because of you or even your confession of sin, but because of Jesus' death on a cross, what he did for you. We learn from the stories of John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Apostle Paul, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he ate the bread. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's the second coming we'll talk about at Christmas. Let me pray. God, as we pass the elements and as we take these elements to remember your body being broken with the bread, your blood being shed to cover over our sins with the cup, God, help us to be grateful for what you've done for us and help us never forget the great, the great price you paid for our salvation and our eternal life and our joy in this life. Help us remember, Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.